and welcome to the 16th episode of the Big Screen Book Club, the podcast that celebrates the loving relationship between literature and film and seeks to answer the biggest question of them all. What's the book really better? I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Joseph Kime. This month, we have something incredibly exciting for you. In October, we were lucky enough to be a part of the Voicebox lineup at Cheltenham Literature Festival, and we got to take the Big Screen Book Club live, in person, and in colour for the very first time. It was, oh, it was so exciting. It was so much fun. I'm so, I was so so glad that we've been able to be a part of it. Um, And, lucky for us, we were finally able to invite our very first guest to the podcast, and we couldn't have asked for more perfect company. This month's episode features the wonderful Rowan Hazara Buchanan, Costa Book Award nominee and author of Harmless Like You and Starling Days. She's also a contributor to the essay collection East Side Voices, essay celebrating East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain. We knew she'd be just perfect to join us on this podcast, especially when she told us what to cover for the episode. <laughs> This episode, brought to you by Rowan, will be covering The Handmaiden, the modern <laughs> classic directed... I know! The modern <laughs> classic directed by Park Chan-wook. What made this choice so fascinating was its origins in literature, as The Handmaiden's source material is drastically different. The film is based on Sarah Waters' Fingersmith, a book with similarities to its adaptation, but with one key difference. It's set in Victorian England. We'll leave the rest of the details to Pants, Joseph, Clarice, and Rowan. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I want to, like, give a warning to my past self. <laughs> About what? What's the one? It was lovely. Don't, it was a great chat. Don't turn left. <laughs> no, it's a warning about something else that happened in between then and now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Enjoy the very first live episode of the Big Screen Book Club. Uh, but we have our first time for this episode. We have a really special guest, uh, Rowan Hazayo Buchanan, who uh, is the author of Harmless Like You and Starling Days. And you, I, this is really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so you previously won the Authors Club First Novel Award. You've been shortlisted for the Costa Novel Award. And your work also features in a new book called East Side Voices, essay celebrating East and Southeast Asian identity in Britain. And I want to thank you so much for coming today and also for your choice of book and movie mm. which is so like on brand for us that J- when yeah. you suggested it we were like why haven't we done it yet <laughs> <laughs> and that is do you want to introduce i've been talking for too long yes so, <laughs> no you're right so <laughs> this month we're going to be talking about the handmaiden the park Chan work film and the book that it was based on surprisingly a book set in 1800s england something i wasn't ready for fingersmith it's a fantastic book strongly recommend you read it um but it is definitely one that's worth picking apart because there are some very distinct differences. First off though, Rowan, why did you pick out The Handmaiden for us? Well, first going to say thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an honor. Um, so I picked it out partially because of the differences. The book is set in Victorian England and it's all about sort of class and what womanhood means in England at that time and what queerness might mean in England at that time. And then sort of the fact that it was turned into a movie that I guess this is a spoiler of where I sit on this debate. I love that is incredibly beautiful, but is set in 
career as occupied by the Japanese, which is not a leap I would ever have made and therefore take some of those things about class in the novel and make them about nationality, aspiration, they become even more loaded. And because the way the Japanese treated comfort women in Korea, like the sort of use of female sexuality again, like gets this other further layer. So it becomes a way both to see the themes of the book in a different light, but to talk about something that was going on in Asia at the time is very, very interesting to me. And so, yeah, I just thought it would be fun to talk about. And also critics disagree on whether they liked it or not. So it's <laughs> good to argue about that. Yeah. I mean, I love it. And yeah, I had a really good time. Love it. It was, it was an omission of mine that I, I hadn't caught for a while. So I started Fingersmith before I saw The Handmaiden, which was probably really good because the twist really got me. I wasn't ready for it. There's so much happening, and especially in the book as well, I'd argue that the twists are much harsher and much more in your face, and there's more of them as well, as I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but the ending is obviously different, but the moments in which the story really take that right-hand turn, it's so intense. And with what I really love about the book as well is how modern its writing is based on its time as well. It really does feel like a modern story, despite the fact that it is set in the 1800s. And I think that's what made it so unputdownable and very immediately fascinating is that it was there with you all the time and it never really let up on the details and it had a really good pace as well. So when those twists came, it knew exactly the speed it wished to hit you with with them. Yeah, I mean, Rowan, I wanted to ask you, because what I find really interesting, picking up on what you said, is that Sarah Waters, for people who don't know, also did Tipping the Velvet, which is like the very famous uh, Victorian lesbian romance novel. Um, and she came to these stories through academia and she'd study the Victorian period and she'd study like queer stories and, and writing and novels uh, throughout that period and kind of... I, it seems like from what I've read in her interviews that she really wanted to just replicate like that feeling. Uh, and obviously then when you take Park Chan-wook, who's like not from that background, <laughs> has very, very different interests. Um, I think fundamentally what changed is that he was obviously no longer trying to echo the stylings of the sort of slightly melodramatic, macabre, Victorian, like ghoulish, like crazy twists, and oh my god, all this is going down, and we're thieves, and we're thieving together. <laughs> like, there's a lot of that in the book, it is so fine. And the movie is like really fun too, but in a very Park Chan Wook way. And I wondered for you, like, what. what feels totally like the most fundamental difference? So I'm going to try to answer that and it might be kind of roundabout answer. So we I apologize. Love roundabout. We love <laughs> just babbles, so please yeah, go for it. <laughs> the first time I read Fingersmith, I was a preteen and I think my dad had brought it on holiday, although he now claims he didn't. It must have been my mum's. don't know. Anyway, I borrowed it and my parents were like, oh, is that age appropriate for you? And by then I'd gotten to like sexy lady times and I was like I'm gonna read this I'm already reading it you can't stop me and I think that sort of was my memory of the first time that I read it and then years and years later I watched The Handmaiden and I found it incredibly 
beautiful. I mean, obviously the actresses are beautiful, but the landscape, even though it's talking about one of the worst times in Asian history, he's it's so lush. Everything, the house, the grounds, the even the tree in which the aunt hangs herself is beautiful. Um, and you know, I sort of absorbed that, sort of remembered vaguely the book. And it wasn't until you guys asked me to come on this podcast, I was like, well, I need to reread the book, rewatch the movie, and see them side by side, that I went, oh, wow, these are the same. And there are lines that literally appear almost word for word. And yet, this feels very different. And I feel that Sarah Waters is almost glorying in the grungy parts of Victorian England, the poor live in somewhere that's very unpleasant, but also the rich in that book. Also, the house is terrible. Everything is terrible and cold. <laughs> Everyone's always cold. Um, whereas, in some ways, I think the movie is much more interested in like drenching you in this sort of these beautiful aesthetics, and then being like, "Surprise, though, it's horrible, and people might die." <laughs> I don't know if that was an answer. I, I like think that you're so right, and you've. I am such a huge like Park Chan-wook fan, and that's kind of the thing that he does is that he makes the most horrific things beautiful, but not in a way that undoes their horror. And certainly for me, going into it like. Because I, I had seen the movie as like a Park Chan-wook fan and I, I knew that it was inspired by this book. I assumed very loosely because I was like, <laughs> this movie's very him. There's an octopus in it. Anyone seen Old Boy? Hey, <laughs> there's a connection. Uh, and so I assumed that he just randomly took like the plot synopsis of something and made his own movie. But you're so right that like they are so closely linked until the end and I think at some point we're gonna have to tackle the end I don't know if we mm. want to do that now I feel like let's hear your thoughts first and then we can yeah. get into other things see I <laughs> they are obviously very different beasts um, but I really appreciated the film because like you said it it takes on the horrors without ever undoing it and I, I have to say I think the film was a little bit funnier than I was expecting there are there's just little tiny moments that sort of peek through the gaps and give you a little bit of slapstick, a little bit of silliness, but it never ever reaches a point where it undoes all of the all of the grimness of it. And I think that's what the film does really well, is that it replicates what the book has going for it, but it kind of takes out the Oliver twistiness of it. <laughs> Great descriptor. You know exactly what I mean though, that's the thing. It's Oliver. <laughs> Alright. Hey. There's no dodges in it. But it's it's so it counts as a bit of a dodger. Little. Yeah, well. Yeah. It's just a creep. That counts. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> all, all creeps are fagin. That's how it works. <laughs> but it's, it's so interesting to me that you can take a story and change its political and geographical situation and still come through with a story which practically means the same. And I think the book probably deals with class a little bit more than the film does and the film focuses much heavier on the romance of it all um, and I think both are very you know formidable ways of presenting the story they're both great in their very own ways but I th I'm just 
such a gooey romantic that the film just had me. I'm so soppy. It's, I'm so bad for it, but the film, it just, it, it had me straight away. I think it's gorgeous. Okay, so I feel like, okay, there's a good way to link all of this together. Um, that you're, you're right, because the, the really big difference is the ending. Because the book, I'm going to again go all of a twist, like <laughs> Victorian uh, Penny Dreadful. It, it, near the end, there's just more and more twists. I mean, is it okay to spoil things? I don't want to spoil things with people who haven't. I'm saying not. I'm going to assume it's fine. Okay, so you know, in the movie, you have kind of the major twist that the they're both plotting on each other, <laughs> but then in the book, you have the the identity twist where it's like, okay, actually, the maid is the lady, and the lady is the maid, <laughs> and like it keeps going like that. That's the entire ending section of the book, and. It, like I loved it, but it gets quite crazy, and I was like, "What? Who? What?" <laughs> <laughs> While in the film, you you get this, I guess, sort of yeah, fantasy, slightly fantasized empowerment moment where the women have a real moment that they don't have in the book of going, "Let's team up, <laughs> <laughs> let's team up, take the guys down, and then let's have cool, fun sex together <laughs> with some bells." <laughs> um, and I feel like I, for me, wonder whether those major decisions are linked to the fact that the book is about class and gender and identity. And the movie is, as you said, more about like the, the colonial aspect of it and gender and identity. I mean, let's, yeah, let's just talk about what did you think of the, the switches and endings and what they say about the stories? I don't know if I could say exactly how the how these decisions were made by the author and the director, but to me, the book is very romantic, but in this constantly missing each other way, like each one of them, there's a gesture, and you're like, you gonna you gonna be honest with each other? Oh no, you're not. You're not gonna be honest with each other. All right then. Um, oh, you think the other one's betraying you? No, they're trying to help you, really. Ah. And at the very, very end, you sort of, and I hope this isn't a spoiler, it's still worth reading. It's <laughs> worth reading. Um, there's a moment where you think they're basically about to finally have that moment. The, you know, actually we love each other. Maybe we can just have a nice life together. And it's sort of promised, though not quite seen. And as you were saying in the movie, that romance is cemented much earlier and that in some ways makes it a much more hopeful for me story even though in some ways I would you know the fact that like one of them is Japanese and the other a rich Japanese girl who may or may not be able to get her inheritance and one of them is a poor Korean girl and we're in about to have a war and we have an occupation we're about to have more war like they're running away to Shanghai, which is not, that's not going to be a good place, mm. like, um, very soon. But he leaves us on this moment of happiness and hope that if you sort of have cult some knowledge of the history, you think that's not going to last. But you get to see them in that, in that moment of joy. And so it's weird that to me, when I'm trying to imagine beyond the story, it's actually easier for me to imagine like the happiness in the Victorian world. That's so interesting. That's such a good point because I am very guilty of being like the movie. They, 
everything's happy. <laughs> movie, <laughs> movie ended and they're happy and I'm not thinking of what happens beyond this. I'm really guilty of doing that. Um, do you think that's intentional? I mean, I suspect so, or at least I... <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to. I realize I've actually quite a tough question. To be like, <laughs> know the mind of Park Chapman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, he's a very brilliant person. I can't say what's happening in there. But I, th- I do think what feels deliberate to me is that as much as he's created a world in which there is like violence within the beauty, there is also beauty within the violence. And it's almost like at the beginning of the movie he's like everything is so pretty wait it's evil and then to me at the end of the movie it's like oh the world is really bad and chaotic and frightening and people are out to get you but you still have this love and this romance and it's sort of like they flipped if that makes sense yeah yeah totally i mean what did you yeah what are your thoughts yeah i think it's I think it's very dependent on, when you look at the ending, it's very dependent on how you assess both films and books. I think the ending of the book makes much more sense for it being a book, because there's, there's a lot, it's quite a big book. There's a lot to assess in it. Um, and getting to know these characters a little bit more makes it much easier to digest when somebody you've known the whole time is actually somebody's mother, and there's baby swapping, and there's all of this, you don't know who's who, and what's what, you don't know who's stabbing who, it's it's a complete kerfuffle by the end, which only really works in the book. I feel like if it, if it came to that in the film, it would be, it'd be like a lot of flashing colours, and it would come together in a little bit more of a chaotic way, but I love the ending of the film because obviously like we said there's the implication that if they're going to Shanghai it's probably not going to turn out great for them but what I really love about that ending is it gives you that image of hope anyway and in that moment it's irrelevant because realistically they've got what they wanted the whole time obviously they're going to work through thick and thin after the fact but the most important thing is the point of the film and the point of their burgeoning relationship as the film goes on it finally reaches that point where they've almost beaten something and it's from that point that they can that they can figure the rest out you get you get that peak and that's what i think is the most important part because obviously life's probably going to be quite turbulent from then but it gives you that that little it gives you that little reward at the end of everything's happy for a minute <laughs> and then and then after that obviously and chaos ensues i presume but at least we get that image at the end anyway I I wonder what was interesting to me about the ending as well is that one of them disguising themselves as a man and they've got a little mustache and they do the whole thing to try and sneak out. She makes that mustache work, by the way. It's really good. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Really good. <laughs> um, but because I know that tipping the velvet that's that's got a whole element about kind of gender boundaries and and pushing that and not in this book i don't think anyone ever dresses up as a different gender in this book right i don't no um so i wonder what you guys thought about that inclusion and like does that change what the movie's saying about gender because i was like i feel like it does but I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how. But it's just interesting that he made that choice, I guess. Hmm. What do you think? I mean, I don't know what it necessarily... I think he thinks he was 
saying about gender. I mean, to me, it's indicating, it's sort of giving a hint of how they might make this work in the world that they're in. Yeah. In a way in which you feel like in the book, maybe they're just going to live as like lady friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because at the end of... Yeah, at the end of the book, it's like, she, well, she's going to write these erotic novels. And be all like, but I know it's quite hard for women in the Victorian <laughs> period to get stuff published. Like, is she, maybe the implication is that she will have to publish under a man's name or... Um, literary mustache. <laughs> like a literary exactly. mustache. Just like George Eliot had, literary mustache. Literary <laughs> mustache. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I think that just struck me as interesting because I, I feel like both stories have so much to do with identity and how you identify yourself like that basically creates the space that you're allowed to move around in, mm. right? So whether you are the the lady or the maid, and then even in the book, the differences between being the lady's maid, where you're sort of like a little higher up and you get to go into the bedrooms and you get to like poke around the corsets <laughs> versus the rest of the servants in the house who have this weird relationship mm. with Sue where they're like, we kind of hate you. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of hate you and we love you and you're scared of you at the same time. Um, and then I guess the, the movie has that as well and then brings in the Korean and Japanese identity into that as well like so I think that's what I I'm not really leading to a question I'm just <laughs> I think to me what's what's interesting is coming back to this idea that they, they're really telling the same story like and that's what really shocked me is I didn't realize that they would be almost exactly the same they just happen to take place in different countries and different time periods and one of them is Park Jan-wook and he loves octopuses so there had to be an octopus <laughs> in the movie and apart from that they're kind of the, the same mm. but to be fair there's an octopus in one of the first ever recorded instances of Japanese porn and mm. in the book the book is about a guy who collects erotica so it's not even True. that big a stretch to have the octopus I mean maybe that's why he made the whole movie he was just like look how an octopus <laughs> now <laughs> it wasn't just a Pixar themed easter egg that Park Chan walked through oh I like those that'll go in yeah but then I guess maybe the reason the octopus and old boys also because of that link to like the the pornographic side I don't again I don't know how his mind works <laughs> I would love to know he's a fascinating guy <laughs> um I okay one thing I want, really want to talk about because I'm obsessed with costume design uh and I feel like that the outfits and the dresses there's so much in the book about garments they're always lacing up corsets and describing like the different because a, a big part of them being able to switch identities is basically what kind of dress they're wearing <laughs> and like sue wears a slightly fancier nicer dress and everyone just assumes she's the lady of the house even though she's not acting like that mm. at all um so i wondered what both of your thoughts were just on yeah, just on the role of like clothing and if you want, even want to talk about the house and the settings and that amazing, as you said, amazing production <laughs> design, how any of that kind of ties into these stories. I will say like when, obviously I think the book 
deals with class a little bit more, a little bit more intricately, I suppose. Um, but the way that the film, like you said, treats costume and outfits and how everybody assumes that you're high class if you're wearing a high class outfit, it sort of dissects the idea that class actually means anything. All you have to do is throw on your costume and you can be as rich as you want to say that you are. And I think it is interesting as well that um, outfits become quite a big part of luring Sue into being part of this plot anyway. Saying you can have X amount of money and you can have all the outfits and all the jewellery that you want. The fact that that is such a big deal at the start and it's such a big selling point for Sue getting involved in the plot in the first place for it all to be dissected a little bit later on by the fact that you can just throw something on and people assume that you're that you're what you say you are, it, it all comes together in such a way that just indicates that class is a bunch of nonsense and or yeah, it's, it's basically a fake it till you make it kind of attitude to, to class. Yeah, well, because the gentleman as well, mm. like, again, spoiler, <laughs> yeah. the whole way through the book, I feel like you really do think he is this fallen aristocracy, and at the end they're like, nah. <laughs> just some guy. guy. Just some guy who turned up in a hat and started calling himself the gentleman. And, you know, it's incredible how, because I think, in the book she does go into so much detailed description of what everybody's wearing and even the very subtle descriptions of how the gentleman um or richard like his coat how he's wearing his coat and how his whiskers like what length his whiskers are like you as a reader kind of get fooled into thinking i really thought that guy was i thought there was going to be a big reveal that he was like i don't know (laughs) some fancy guy and he isn't at all and i I find, yeah, I find that really interesting. It's irritating that we bought it as well. We read the, we read it and we watch it and we think, God, these idiots thinking that they're so high class because of what they're wearing. And it tells us, oh, the gentleman's wearing something fancy. I'm like, oh, yeah, he must yeah, be fancy he then. He must be fancy. <laughs> <laughs> he must be the real deal. <laughs> Although I feel like there's also this loaded and like quite tragic thing about the cla- class is fake, mm. but also trying to socially climb is really dangerous and hard. And so as you were saying, like the clothes are part of how Sue gets lured into the plot, but also how she gets lured into the madhouse. Because mm. when her mistress is like, oh, just try on my pretty dress, just wear it for a while. And she's like, oh, I, I feel kind of fancy. This is uncomfortable, but I feel so pretty. Um, and you know, that's how she gets trapped is by seeing herself in the mirror and imagining like, oh, I could be fancy. And instead it's, oh no, I'm going to be really screwed. Mm. And then also there's a bit that's in the book that isn't in the movie, so I shouldn't go on about it too long, but that like breaks my heart, where if you haven't read the book, the woman who's like Sue's adopted mother, um, and actually the mother of the posh girl, though she doesn't think she's posh, it's very confusing, um, <laughs> has been saving up these dresses and they're really fancy and they're, well, she thinks they're really fancy. This, this woman who's basically sort of running a thieves racket, she thinks they're really, really fancy and really, really beautiful. And then her biological daughter, who doesn't know her, she's her daughter, comes and she's like, I've been saving you these dresses this whole time. And her daughter's basically like, these are trashy prostitute dresses. Yeah. I wouldn't ever wear these. And like, and the fact that they have such different perceptions. Then Sue comes back, sees the dresses, and like, oh, those are such nice dresses. You wear my dresses. <laughs> um, and they mean such different things to different characters. Yeah, and it's like just e- even in the the wearing of color, because I feel like for people who it's that thing of like for people who don't 
have wealth, it feels like you need to display it to be able to have social like mobility and be able to move through the world. So her idea of a beautiful dress, it's like violet colored. It's I think they said, well, there's one thing that's green. And what did they say? That was like, oh, there's only a little bit of like lead in it. Don't worry. <laughs> something like something horrific. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, yeah, these like really, really brightly colored dress. And, and yeah, the idea that um, more, I'm getting confused because they're all different identities. But the lady <laughs> um, who's been brought up in wealth looks at them and goes, Ugh, don't you have like some gray or some blue or some brown? Because it's the opposite idea that if people who have a, a ton of wealth are so used to be able to moving into whatever space they like, that they almost, there's the fake humility thing of like disguise your wealth by wearing a very humble gray dress. And you're so right that it's, it's such a tiny, tiny part of the book and it's so subtle, but it says so much about why these characters have so much difficulty just like, as you said, not being on the same level. And that's why they're always missing each other and not just like, just like, oh God, if you could just, understand the world in the same way this wouldn't feel like such a tortured romance almost mm -hmm. yeah I'm wondering now I mean look because we've been holding it off for a long time we've got, we've got half an hour and it's like do we want a full half hour to discuss this but the sex scenes because I feel like that was such a big topic of conversation mm -hmm. when the handmaiden came out is everybody was talking about the bells and i feel like that's what i was told when i first went to see it someone was like oh my god park chan has got a new movie out people are putting bells off each other <laughs> <laughs> and this is what like film critics really love to do is they make they try to make it sound as salacious as possible and my memory of watching the movie is that that scene's actually really nice and yeah. and it's like two women who have fought really hard to be together and I think as well because there's this idea in the film that you know obviously the men have their idea of, of pornography of what's erotic and they can only see women as like tools in that and so you have that very weird scene where they hoist her up on a puppet mm -hmm. and it's meant to simulate sex and it's like the woman and the puppet are treated as the same because there's no agency there there's no n nothing to her and I feel like even the idea of wearing the gloves in the movie I mean we can talk about the gloves maybe a bit later um, there's this idea of like well a woman she, she'll wear gloves because she's not like doing anything in this situation right it's like women are so passive they just lie back and stuff happens um, and so what I love about that ending sex scene is that like they've taken something that men thought belonged to them and it was like for our pleasure for us and they've gone actually no we like it too <laughs> like this is for us we found a way to like have our own kind of kinky sex and it works for us and we're in love and we love it and i un i understand all the criticisms of the movie but i found that ending scene like surprisingly empowering if that makes sense mm. i don't know <laughs> what did you think <laughs> so i watched 
the movie shortly after it came out before I'd read any reviews of it. Just, I don't even remember why. Oddly, it was Mother's Day and I was watching a cinema and in front of me there was this mother and these two daughters and they kept talking to each oh. other about their dates oh. and I kept being like, oh, <laughs> But anyway, um, I watched it and, you know, I just thought it was beautiful and then I... In preparation for appearing today, I went and was reading some reviews and some of them really positive, but one of them, I can't remember which critic, was like, this is very male gazy, he's a male director, he's, you know, objectifying these women, this is all the male gaze. And it gave me kind of a crisis. I, like, <laughs> I thought they were quite sexy. Um, I don't think of myself as a man. Does this mean that the male gaze has ruined my brain? You're a monster. <laughs> I, I mean, I thought those ladies were mm, quite nice. <laughs> um, them. Yeah. And so I, I don't, I don't know to what extent. Like, if something's going to be in a book, it's obviously going to be more deeply in the character's head and in their emotional experience of whatever sexual act versus in the, you know, if you're going to sing on screen, they are naked. Um, but I don't know. To me, it did feel. I actually thought it felt much more like my experience of reading the book than I sort of. I didn't think that review was very fair, maybe. Mm. Um, yeah. Is it? A, I think it was by Slate, and I can't remember the, the writer, but I also read that review, and I had the same thing of like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I, I think that brings up a very good point that when we talk about male gaze in cinema, like, it's a really useful tool, and Laura Mulvey is great, and everyone should read that essay. But there's a tendency, I think, to be a little bit reductive with it and say, like, if you are a male director, you are doing male gaze all of the time. <laughs> and and I think it is there is a massive element of subjectivity to it, because I think two people can look at one scene and and one will see empowerment and, and one will see degradation. And it's the same thing they're looking at it's really about our personal idea of like what feels like what feels right <laughs> what feels like uh free and and like there's agency and like there's investment in it and and also like with sex scenes what feels sexy mm. <laughs> and yeah i do think you're right in the you know in conversation about the male gaze it has been quite it can be quite reductive because a lot of the perspective on it is if men can look at it and like it in many ways, or if, if it's been made by a man and men can enjoy it, uh, that's a lot of what some people can identify the male gaze as. But what's interesting about this film is I think you do see the male gaze, but that's in the work of the pornographers and the really horrible, degrading stuff that's already there. I think that's what makes a lot of the sex scenes so, I don't know, so great in contrast because we see the passion and the care and the love in it, but you also get what on the flip side, what all the men are clearly looking for. It's what they're in the room for. Just the really grim, horrible stuff that without consent is, I don't, you could argue is verging on torture, it's horrible. So you do get a little bit of both. So it's interesting to point at both of the interpretations of sex as the male gaze, because you do get a little bit of that, but very much on purpose. And on the opposite side, it's very caring and passionate. Well, because I feel like there's a part of it that part of the story and their journey is about, like, 
to women or a woman who has only been surrounded by a certain idea of sex and they're kind of they're coming from that starting point and over the course of the film they're learning to create their own version of sex and like their own like paradise and i i feel like that's what i really like about the the final scene i like that it ends on a sex scene because it's them being like this is for us now like maybe that first time that that they i was gonna say hook up (laughs) (laughs) the first time that they have sex I think maybe that sex scene, yeah, feels more, I want to say almost say performative, like they are, there's an element of to it of like, we are having sex, <laughs> we're going to do a bunch of stuff, and we're like going to be really, we're going to really look like we're into it, and I don't know if that's me reading it, <laughs> weirdly, but I felt like there's like a little bit of an element of that, and then over the course of the movie, they just they get more comfortable with each other and more comfortable with their idea of, of pleasure. And then by the end, it's just like, this is just really nice. I'm so <laughs> happy for them. <laughs> it's only Park Chan Wook that can put two women putting bells inside them at the end of the film and makes go, oh, it's really nice. Oh, it's so lovely. Nice. Yeah, it's cute. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think even even the early scenes, like I actually think to me part of what when we talk about male gaze or being objectified is is that it's being made into an object, which you know happens with a doll. But even when they're working against each other and like lying through their teeth to each other, because that's so much part of the story that's being told, we're so aware of their minds because they're lying. And so you have to think about the fact that they're lying through their actions. And so to me, one of the like in some ways even like perhaps sexier than the bells is that scene that's in the book and in the movie although in the book well the scene in which the girl who believes she is the servant and the girl who believes she is posh um the servant girl well the posh girl goes oh my tooth's so sharp i've cut my tongue oh no who can help me <laughs> and um the serv- and the servant girl goes in and goes oh i will file it off with a um god what's he when you're sewing oh, like a thimble, a thimble. Yeah. and like she puts her hand in the other girl's mouth and it's like scraping her tooth which shouldn't be sexy <laughs> and yet is in both the book and the movie yes Although in the movie, admittedly, she's also naked in the bath. I think she's clothed (laughs) in the book. But it's fine. Um, But, like, in some ways, like, neither of them at that point really knows what's going on in the other's head. And, like, is this totally an innocent act? Or, ooh, we're both having quite a lot of feelings about this weird, intimate touching. And, like, I actually... I think, you know, as much as it's sexual even in the version where she's naked like not a lot's happening you know it's just someone filing a tooth but it's it's sexy in some ways because it is about this sort of very tentative approach of these two individuals and like the beginning of intimacy i don't know and i think to me that makes them not objects because it wouldn't be interesting if they were like if you were they were just like 
I still, I like 100% agree. And I think it's such a huge part of the, like their romance is them is discovery because they're kind of coming at the situation just not knowing what anything is. <laughs> or one of them has read a bunch of books about it, but the books are not really an accurate reflection of reality. And so I feel like the book does this, especially that there's so many moments and the tooth filing is a big one where they're like halfway through something and they're like, oh, <laughs> why do I why do I feel like this all of a sudden and I like I think that's great and I find I think that's like really hot it's like a hot way to, to write a romance is like people not even understanding how they feel feel and almost the journey of the romance is them having to to reach a point of being like oh this is desire that I feel like my stomach's not just doing weird stuff <laughs> I am horny for this person and and it adds to that that torturous sense of the will they won't they I guess element of it because they come to that realization at different parts in the book and especially because the book is fragmented so you're you're looking at one person's perspective and then another person's perspective so you while reading the first part are like oh my god does she feel the same way like whoa and you have to read like 200 pages to be like yes (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) and it just it just increases that like that tortuous but like delightful hubbub of confusion that i think Mm. is desire and love and romance and makes for great love stories. Yeah, I think it's that that release that makes a book and a story like this so good. Especially with that last scene as well, because you know that all pretense has been dropped. They know that they've lied to each other. There's no fighting for anything anymore. It's just there. It's just the two of them. They don't have to worry about anything else in that moment. I think that's what makes that so special. It's what makes those moments throughout the book so good and just so, so vibrant and it, it darts you around emotionally, it'll hit you with a twist, it'll hit you with a shock, and then finally you sort of, you get to get a deeper look at love in spite of all of the horrible shit that happens throughout the story. It's so, it's so good, it gives you so much of so many different things that it balances out as just such a brilliant story with so much, so much liveliness in its pace. And I, I wonder what's interesting, because you don't get this, a lot um, is that in both the film and the book we see the same sex scene twice which you know does not happen a lot and seeing it from slightly different perspectives like completely changes the nature of what is happening in that moment even though the physical actions are the same the description of it just it feels almost like you're, yeah, it's like a weird like re-experiencing of it. I wonder what you what you thought about just that idea of repeating it and going back to it. Hmm. So I think part of what I find in both the book and the movie is it's really funny because in the first the first time you see it in both cases, you're seeing it from the thief slash servant girl's point of view, and she's like, "I'm so cunning. I'm I'm like getting you to make out with me." in preparation for like running away with this man I'm basically selling you to for money. And like, you're so innocent and dumb and I am the worldly experienced one. (laughs) And then when you finally get to it the other way around, 
you're watching her be double conned and having the other girl go like, I'm so innocent, what's happening? Oh, what would a man do right now? <laughs> would he do that? And it's just very funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, like, the, you know, the sort of the sense of, like, the one girl feels she's so smart, and you're like, oh, God, darling. Darling, you're not that smart. I'm sorry. <laughs> and Sue's like, wow, you're a natural at this. Like, yeah. Yeah. I don't know anything. I'm just, like, doing it on pure instinct. Like, not, I study this. 24 <laughs> I'm literally an academic expert in having sex. <laughs> it's so much fun to come back to it all because obviously you get that intent in the first part. When it comes back around in that second part, is you can tell how brilliant Sue thinks she is. But Morse is like, you fucking doofus. I've, I've been planning this the whole time. And coming back to the story as a whole through that lens is so fascinating, especially when the when the twist takes you so hard like it did me. It's so fascinating to come back to it with this whole other level of scheming. I, I so wasn't ready for it. I genuinely thought, because we got to the, um, I was coming to the end of part one. I knew I was coming to the end of part one. I was like, oh. Oh, they've almost done it. Well, it's, I, I, it almost tempted me into believing that everything would be fine and it would work. I think that, <laughs> it's, honestly, with a book that big and I had so much left to go and I was still like, that's it, surely. That's great. Love it. sold it. it to me. I don't know how it managed it. But then coming back from a brand new perspective was so interesting and to readdress everything on a level of actually I was much smarter than you the whole time it's so fascinating I love coming back to things like that and one thing that I think the book does do better or it's much easier just because of the different mediums is reading the second part and how different the characters are when you're just looking at it through a different perspective because when you're reading the first one, you're like, God, modest. <laughs> I was mad. I was. I was thinking of like a character that Mia Goth would play in a movie. Like I was like, okay, Mia Goth would play that Maud character. <laughs> just the character in Emma. Yeah, very like. Oh, what's this? Oh, oh, I like looking out the window <laughs> at this hot man smoking. Um, and then to see that that twist and then suddenly Sue's the one that looks like an idiot in the second part. <laughs> You're like, Sue's just going around being like, <laughs> I love being a maid. <laughs> um, which I, I think that's the one thing that obviously just because it's a film and you can't really totally switch someone's performance out of the blue, it would be very disconcerting. I mean, you could, but it, it would be a very different film you don't really get that contrast as much. And I did notice that, um, like, when... In in the book, there's a whole thing about her very slowly finding Maud beautiful. She's kind of like, oh, she's kind of spooky looking. <laughs> and then over the course, they, like, there's a more natural romance to it almost because they spend time with each other and you see people in different light and that feels more true to life while in the handmaiden they're just both incredibly hot and they acknowledge <laughs> it straight away they're like she's so beautiful <laughs> <laughs> i look at i just want there's a 
feel like there's a line in the movie where she's like, I want to like parade her around. I want to take her back and be like, look at her. <laughs> <laughs> look how hot my mistress is. <laughs> and I just, I always, I always find that really interesting. Like the very, the very small decisions that adaptations have to make just because of the nature of the medium that you just can't have two actors completely switch performances like halfway through or maybe you could I don't know do you think you could have done that I don't know I, I do think it's I feel like books have more of a tendency to be quite open about the weirdness of people's faces there's so many descriptions of faces that I've read which is like this guy looks kind of like a freak there's something up with him but in in film, it's a lot more difficult to do that because it's not like you're being drip-fed that information and it's not like it's being submitted to you by the writer when they decide it's necessary to give it to you. They are there. There's only so much you can do to avoid it, which is probably why it makes more sense that in the film, she's just straight away, oh my God, I didn't think she'd be this beautiful. Oh no. So it's, <laughs> it, it, it makes more sense to me that the film did that because obviously while... I think it makes that romantic love a little bit more special when the characters are described as slightly uglier. It, it it's, a, it's probably a simpler way of presenting that to an audience. Yeah. Although I think what, to me, the book and the movie did really well, and maybe I'm reading this onto the movie because I was thinking about the book at the same time, is I think sometimes... I guess weirdly to also circle back to the whole male gaze thing you think of like there's a performance of femaleness that only tricks men mm -hmm. but actually Maud or Hideko the same character the Poshko character <laughs> is using a performance of like dumb pretty or spooky but then pretty but like definitely like I'm just a simple simple posh girl pose to not only trick the men around her but to trick um, the servant girl who's come and that it works that she is we're so taught that these are the types of people and this is a type of woman that you just nod along and like even I I think you know the first time I'm reading from Sue's perspective or um so many versions of the names <laughs> from the servant's perspective when we're looking at sort of the rich girl I not, you know, you nod long and you go, yeah, yeah, okay. Dumb, dumb rich girl with nice clothes, okay. No, I'm not gonna assume there's more going on in there. And then in both cases, even in the movie, where the acting's the same, but you're given the context and you go, oh God, you'd be really smart actually to pull off talking like that when you're thinking that. <laughs> um, and you sort of, it goes, yeah, you, you thought she was one thing and she's not. And you, the reader or viewer, almost feels guilty about having been fooled by this performance. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think especially in the book, I felt silly. <laughs> <laughs> I felt silly. I was like, how did I? Oh, <laughs> none of the twists I saw coming. <laughs> And maybe that is, maybe I'm not stupid and it is brilliant writing. I should give credit to Sarah Waters <laughs> and not be like, I'm just a dum-dum who doesn't understand <laughs> plots. Um, but I think, and I think that's part of the genre that she's writing in is that it is the Victorian melodrama. Well, I feel like Park Chan-wook is also 
delivering melodrama, but it's very much his version of it that I feel like all his movies are quite melodramatic. Like, Stoke is very melodramatic. I mean, Nicole Kidman in that movie. <laughs> He's, like, acting up a storm. <laughs> um, it, so, But it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think, like, a lot of the the nature of the trickery feels more complex in the book just because that is the the nature of the genre that she's writing in and i feel like with the handmaiden i like that he sort of simplified it and there's a simplicity and with the movie it feels more elegant of like it's funny and it's definitely funny because i think his films are always funny but with taking out all these million different identity reveals, it just comes back to this, these two people who are playing a game against each other and then realize halfway through that the game is stupid and they should actually like find the guy who made the game <laughs> and ruin his life. I guess, does that, does that describe yeah. the plot of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that sounds about right. I, yeah, I do really like the simplification of it. It just, it makes it all a little bit easier to digest. There's a lot more going on in the book, but that's probably only because it has more wiggle room. And it's, I think with a book, you can write it as long as you want to write it for. With a film, obviously, I'm one of the people that is just like, make all the movies 90 minutes. <laughs> but there's one exception, it's Seven Samurai, get over it. <laughs> but there's, I, I really think that if Park Chan-wook, talented as he may be, if he tried to take on the ending that the book presents, it would be so much, and it's a lot to process after the story that comes before it. it it's a story that benefits the medium of a book better than it would a film. So I do think those simplifications were probably pretty spot on. I mean, I, very, I agree. I, I agree. I think it would just—it would be a five-hour movie. It would be too much. <laughs> I think you do a TV show, maybe like a—if someone yeah. wants to pay him to make a Netflix show. There was one. There was something but. in two thousand and five. It was—I don't know if it was a TV movie or a series. It had Sally Hawkins in it, though. So I'm tempted to go <laughs> yeah, look I'm it sold. up. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want—I did realize watching this that he did add some. He did add a melodramatic element that isn't in the book, which you wouldn't mm. think because there's so much melodrama in the book already. But book isn't incesty and he does he does add he's like what if we made this creepy sex situation with the uncle even creepier let's have some incesty times and then like in the book the servants hate her because she tries to be nice to them and they think she's making fun of them and in the movie servants hate them because actually the head servant is hit the uncle's ex-wife who's been kicked out so we can marry a Japanese lady and steal her money and then he's maybe gonna marry his niece it's pretty- Mm. Mm. Yeah, I feel like Park Chan works going into any boardroom being like, what if we put incest? <laughs> it's kind of hard to name the movies that don't have that as some sort of plot element. Um, I haven't seen Decision to Leave yet. I can't attest to the levels of incest in that. Uh, but yeah, I think that you make a kind of a, a, like, that is a really good point that I think he's kept, he's really kept so much of what Fingersmith is and he's just come in and added like his little things of being like, I'm interested in this and this and in this. And one of them happens to be incest. <laughs> Does it add to the story? I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell you what though, it is really interesting because it sort the film sort of weaponizes sex in a way that makes it, you get the parallels, you get 
sex and all of its beauty, like that last scene. But equally, it uses sex to make you uncomfortable as a viewer. Like the incest stuff, it's sort of just like a natural trigger for, oh, God, no, no. And then, of course, there's the extra added moment when gentleman pulls um, our servant girl aside. Um, and it's like, don't blow this for me. And it's in the film that he makes her grab his penis and gets really in her face about it. And it uses sex in such a way that it just, it, it makes your skin crawl. And it's so interesting to have that compared to the beauty that we have in the rest of the film. It's the it's, it's when men get involved, I think it's, <laughs> it goes for a lot of things. Men get involved, it goes to shit. But I think, I think it is very interesting to look at both of those perceptions of sex and how they make the audience feel, whether it is intensely un uncomfortable or make it easier to read just how romantic the story is. Well, I just, I was thinking about this. The men in, you're very much right, in the movie, the men are a frightening sexual threat. Mm. In the book... It's weird, the uncle collects all these like erotica, but he's very actually almost unsexual himself. He's just like, books, books, <laughs> mm, body's weird, books. And, you know, he has these collector friends, but when she, um, Maud encounters one of them later, he's just sort of hor in her fancy, maybe Victorian slutty dress. Um, he's sort of horrified by her and the men are actually very pulled back. And even gentlemen, I, I wonder if Sarah Waters is trying to make you read him as gay because there are a couple of instances where Maud goes, don't touch me, don't like, don't touch me, you know, even though they've gotten married and, and he's just sort of like, I wouldn't want to. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if you're supposed, I won't, I only wonder it because of sort of the rest of the context of the book. Um, but and yeah, so I, I don't know exactly, I don't have a thesis about what's being said about that, but I feel like there is definitely, the male sexual threat is much more present in the movie than it is in the book. Mm. Yeah, you're so right. And I think, yeah, I think with Gentleman, there's either, there's two ways to interpret it. Either that, yeah, he he's not interested in women, period, or that. The, he talks a lot about, like, I only care about money. Like, I'm only here about money, that he's so he's so focused on the class aspect of it that he just does not see her as a sexual being at all. At some point, another character accuses him of being gay, but Sue goes, eh, they always say anyone's gay who has nice clothes or something. <laughs> yeah. So it's unclear. Good point. I feel like, well, we've only got three minutes left, so I feel, unless anyone has any like closing statements they want to make. <laughs> Do you have a closing statement? I just think they're very interesting in contrast. They're both really compelling stories which in many ways tell you know they, they offer very similar outlooks but the book ends with such chaos that it ends with it ends with that kind of satisfaction of having everything go wrong and then finally finding a little bit of calm at the end whereas it's a little bit more consistently serene in the film and you get a more deep a passionate look at that relationship that they have because in the book there's a whole lot more going on around them but I do think that the film plucked out all of the right things from the book in its adaptation and it helps the story focus in on 
the love story at the core of it. And I think that's what makes it so special. I'm so, I'm drawn to love stories as it is. And if you give me something lovely, I'm there. <laughs> but it, it, just, it all works out so nicely. And there's still all the weird and icky stuff that come together to make it so compelling. But I think by the end, it's such a gorgeous and satisfying close that I'm really glad that Park chan made the changes that he did. If you got no pressure, you don't have to make a close <laughs> Just in case you want to say anything. <laughs> I, I guess the thing I'm thinking about, just where we've been ending up with the conversation is, you know, it's funny, actually, my instinct was, if you had to choose, you know, the aesthetic quality of the movie probably drew me to it more. Like, I probably felt more strongly passionate about it. And I think the simplicity really serves that and allows you to be in the moment. And I think what I've only come to appreciate about the book, reading it now many years after reading it when I was 12, or whatever, is the fact that because it's a book, because it has the ability to have the length, and that mess at the end, it allows you to see, I think, all of the characters as kind of victims of this bigger class system and whether or not gentleman's gay, he's kind of like, he's a poor, aspirational poor guy who's just trying to like make it in the mastermind woman is herself you know quite lost and has lost her baby and she's maybe made the wrong choices and you sort of feel bad for everyone at the end whereas i do think in order to be able to do everything it does so well so i couldn't ask it to do anything differently the movie does end up giving you a slightly more black and white feeling about like these are the goodies and these are the baddies i don't know but i still love the movie so i don't <laughs> i'd watch it again <laughs> Yeah, I I won't do a big closing statement, but just to say, but great movie, great. Yeah, <laughs> yo, yo. Thank you so much. Oh, thank for you for having me. Us. I just before we go, I like I kind of gave a little bit of your spiel at the beginning, but is there anything else you want to plug or where people can find your work on social media or? Um, so yes, so um, I'm on Twitter at Rowan Hisa, which is R W A N. H-I-S-A and that's not on Twitter sorry that's on Instagram <laughs> on, that on Twitter I'm Rowan spelled the same way and then H-L-B and I've written two books Harmless Like You and The Sleep Watcher and my third novel is coming out in April um I can't talk I've been talking for too long the novels I have written in the past are Harmless Like You and Starling Days and in April very excitingly my third book <laughs> The Sleep Watcher is coming out and thank you so much for listening Wait, to me thank you so much for being here being a part of this um, and we're very excited when one of your books gets turned into a movie yeah please I, give us a call fingers, when fingers crossed <laughs> so we're sadly at home again boohoo <laughs> <laughs> My home is very damp, so it's extra sad. But <laughs> <laughs> we are raring and ready to bring the Big Screen Book Club back and to gear up for the holidays. Ding, 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 ding. Oh, it's Christmas. Jingle bells. <laughs> <laughs> As it's getting colder and we're more inclined to keep ourselves safe indoors, we figured it'd be a good idea to avoid the intense politics, horror, and heroin addiction that we do have a habit of falling back on. So this month, we're going to be covering one of the ultimate books to curl up in front of a roaring fire with. In December, we'll be covering an absolute classic, Emily Bronte's 1847 novel, Wuthering Heights. And while there are a good few versions of the book brought to life on the screen, we'll be leaving Laurence Olivier and Tom Hardy behind. Sorry, everyone. We'll instead be watching the 2011 version directed by Andrea Arnold, starring K.S. Scodelario as Kathy and James Howson, who made history as the first person of colour to bring Heathcliff to life on the screen. 
The book is available in your local bookshop, in audiobook form, or on your e-reader, and the film is currently available to stream on Disney+, Plus, just as Andrew Arnold intended, I'm sure. Oh, exactly. <laughs> she had that in mind from the moment she picked up that script. As she, as she dreamed. As she dreamed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this very first live episode of the big screen book club and an extra special thank you to our patrons especially to will driver and rachel our ultimate bibliophile subscribers we'd also like to extend a thanks to voicebox and to Cheltenham literature festival for having us at this year's event it was yes. so much fun we're so proud to be a part of it and we're just we're just stoked on it super, was just so super nice. stoked about all thank of it thank you to everyone anyone who's listening who was there who helped organize it or who came you were all angels. It was wonderful. <laughs> but you can keep up to date with us on Twitter and Instagram at BSBookPod. I'm Clarice Lockery. And I'm Joseph Kahn. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Out on the wily windy moons. Oh, you know what? I'm glad we addressed it. Out of the gate before we even started. That's perfect. <laughs> There's going to be so much more of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm fine with that. I'm completely fine with that. <laughs>